you know, it was his fault for falling for it, but it's also very difficult not to get involved because there you are with this beautiful woman and you fall in love with her and all these celebrities and all this money and you can do whatever you want. And the people who were actually directing you are gone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. This week, my guest is Lori Grinker, who has a new book, which is a collection of her photographs of Mike Tyson. It began in 1981 with an assignment to go up to the Catskills to an 18-bedroom Victorian mansion that was presided over by Customato and his companion Camille Ewald. And as she was observing these kids who were up there, many of which were from very troubled backgrounds, a lot of trauma, extensive rap sheets. Uh, she was fascinated by these kids and, and, and the dynamic that was at work here as they were sort of being healed through boxing. Boxing wasn't her background. Cuss began to nudge her toward one in particular, a kid with a very high voice, extraordinarily sensitive, pronounced lisp, and a preternatural connection with pigeons. And that was Mike Tyson. And I don't think I'm overstating it to say seeing Mike Tyson train in a gym in 1980 or 1981 was probably a lot like passing through in the early 1950s Washington Square Park and encountering Bobby Fischer at a chessboard. Or maybe you happened to go to a Broadway show around the same time and were watching A Streetcar Named Desire and some guy came out who was mumbling a lot and you looked up who he was and it was Marlon Brando, and then you discovered, as Pauline Kael did, that he was doing this on purpose. And this profession was never gonna be the same. Tyson was kind of that for boxing. And Laurie charts this incredible trajectory of Tyson becoming the youngest heavyweight champion ever, going to jail for a rape conviction, coming out even more marketable after that, his loss to Buster Douglas, which was not just the biggest upset in boxing history, but arguably sports history, and then losing over $400 million and going all the way until he begins this sort of redemption tour with the one-man show. And it's not just really a look at Mike Tyson, but as you sort of chart his journey, you can't help but chart our journey as a culture as addicted to him as he's addicted to us. And it's one of the just in incredible features of, of what this work represents, for, for me at least, um, is just Tyson the personality and what's immediately available and what is, I think, forever concealed uh, has allowed this person to stay so relevant for so long. I mean, we think 1986, he's 20 years old winning the heavyweight championship. He's never gone away. And think about how many other great personalities um, fade and, and we forget them. So I don't know what's at work, but it's pretty clear something profound is at work in our connection to, to this personality. And it's revealed in such unusual, unexpected ways in this work. So I was really thrilled to have a conversation with Lori Grinker, and I hope you enjoy it on this week's episode of Tourist Information. Um, I, I was blown away by the pictures you have. Um, and also, I'm just really thrilled to be able to talk to somebody that was actually at the house in the Catskills at the time you were. It's such a fascinating point of entry to this mythic 
world now. Um, so I just thought maybe we could just start with where you were at leading up to this assignment you got to cover Billy Ham for Parsons. Um, sure. Wait, I'm just reconfiguring here. Sorry. Um, okay. So, you know, I went to Parsons to study communication design thinking I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I took a photojournalism class because I had been doing photography um, for more of a, you know, just walking the streets, taking pictures, doing some, you know, I, I wouldn't call it fine art, I would call it street photography maybe, but um, in my first year of college. And then at Parsons, I took this photojournalism class and we had to try to find a story. We had to get find a story and try to get it published in a magazine or a newspaper or somewhere. But, you know, obviously there was no web then. Mm-hmm. And I had been photographing for the new school a class, a seminar about filmmakers on filmmaking and different guests would come, directors, actors, and and then they were gonna teach a class, a, a seminar on Muhammad Ali. And they asked if I would take pictures for that. So this guy, Jim Jacobs, was one of the guests for the Muhammad Ali seminar. And I was in the, the green room, photographing him and talking to him. And he was talking about the kids upstate and cuss. And I, said, well, I have to do a story for a class. Could I go up there? Sounds like a good story. Mm-hmm. And they let me come up. And I met Nadia, this woman, young woman. And I wanted to do the story on her. And I actually started photographing her. And she's still up there. Um, so she was serious about boxing. And she was a Mormon. And she had a pet rat. And it all seemed very visual to me. And then there was Billy Ham, this nine-year-old kid with muscles who lived in a trailer and stayed at the house in Catskill on the weekends. And ultimately I did the story on him. So I went home with him and, um, you know, when he wasn't at Cousin Camille's house. And, but of course Mike was there and there were other kids living in the house. So I would stay at the house on weekends and photograph everything. And this is 1979 when you first visited? No, 19, I, you know, I always get confused if it was 80 or 81, but I, I'm pre, I think it was 81 and Mike was 14. Okay, yeah. And I mean, I've, I've spoken with Nadia a, a couple of times. What made you veer away from her? She's such a fascinating person and visually a very striking person also. People didn't want to see women in boxing. Okay, <laughs> pretty typical. Okay. That, you know, and then, you know, years and years later, women started boxing and it, you know, but like everything, it was, you know, I was young. I took a lot of pictures of her, um, <laughs> but it wasn't saleable, I guess. What were your impressions of Jim Jacobs? Because himself, fascinating person, world hand, the Babe Ruth of handball. He was right. Dis- um, but a very colorful, also kind of mysterious personality and, and history to him with this incredible relationship with Cuss. What, what was Jacobs like? Well, what, one of the parts of the backstory is that when I was photographing Jim in the green room, he asked if I knew 
who Charles Grinker was, who is my father. And I said, yes, he's my father. And my father worked in television doing documentary and educational shows, all kinds of programs. And, you know, whenever he did something related to boxing, he would go to the big fights because they had this incredible fight film archive. So he knew Jim Jacobs. Mm. So, of course, I went back to my dad and said, I met this guy, Jim Jacobs, and I want to go up and photograph at the house. Is he okay? You know, is it safe? And my father's like, yes, he's a very good person. So, um, and he was, you know, a real gentleman. And I think he just wanted to help me and help other people. He was very mysterious. You know, he had leukemia and that's what he died from, but he never told anybody about it. Yeah. And he was, I believe, a comic book obsessive. I mean, another yes. profound misfit of a guy. Yeah, and, he was a lot of comic books. And, and yeah, and he loved boxing. And I don't know how, you know, I don't know anything about the history of him and Cuss. I know that people would have all these stupid rumors about them, but um, they totally lived unfounded. They lived together for 10 years, I think, in, in the city. And it seemed as if he was kind of a patron of Cuss in many ways. Yes, absolutely. And then he was a patron of the house and the kids. Right. And it was a great setup. And Camille and Cuss were a mystery. And it couldn't be public that they were married. And I, I always heard that, oh, because, you know, the mob and all this stuff. I don't really know the details of all that. But. Well, yeah, I mean, I've heard the rumors and I've spoken to many people surrounding the area, but I mean, the Cuss House itself, it's, I mean, it's one thing I wanted to get at with you having entered it is Cuss largely sort of entered the public's imagination in the last stage of his life with this kind of white savior story with Mike is this, this guy with his companion, Camille Ewald, who is his brother's wife's sister. And right, I forgot together. that. You know, okay. <laughs> and, they're, <laughs> and they're warehousing troubled kids from around New York? Interesting. I mean, like, my dad's a child protection lawyer. I haven't heard of many situations quite like this, but, I mean, it's a small right. town. Um, so can you walk me through getting driving down Thorpe Road, and there is this, I think it's an 18-bedroom Victoria mansion in Catskills next to the Hudson, uh, what did you, what did you find that first time that you visited? I just remember the one thing that stood out, of course, right away when you're outside is solar panels. They had solar panels, <laughs> a big array of solar panels. So I had never seen anything like that before. And um, the house inside was, you know, like your grandparents' house. It had old furniture and big rooms and, you know, there were, I don't remember all the kids' rooms. I remember Mike's room. I vaguely remember the room I stayed in, um, in the attic, there was a movie projector and Mike would get films from like the big fights or wherever and he'd watch films all the time and study. The dining room table was, you know, meals were always like Thanksgiving, lots of food. 
And, you know, so the family, it was Teddy Atlas and Cousin Camille and this kid Frank and a couple of other younger kids and Mike and, um, and you know, once in a while me. Um, and the kids had their chores. I mean, it was like a household, you yeah. know, and there was a TV, a little TV in the living room and, and um, they'd watch shows at night. And, you know, I have these pictures of a cousin in his bathroom, bathrobe talking to them and doing his peekaboo motions. And so it was boxing all the time, but there were other conversations going on. And when we were at the table and, you know, I was 23 and an ardent feminist and, I would try to get them into that frame of mind and it was really hard. <laughs> and then I realized as a young, well, I wasn't such a young student, but as a student, <coughs> as a documentarian, it wasn't my job to try to change them. It was my job to document their lives. So I learned on my own that I needed to be more of a fly on the wall and, and observe and photograph and, mm. and it was a very visual situation. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen some archival of Cus talking about women being the biggest problem for the yeah. young people wanting to become boxers. Like they're going to bring you down and all like very, it's not aged well. Um, but but I, I also just like Cuss himself to me is such an in, enigmatic character. I mean, even more than Jacobs, because um, you're right. He's always talking about the mob. The mob is always there as this great other, as this powerful force that he's standing up to. There is documentation. He also worked with the mob when it was mm -hmm. convenient for his fighters um, early on military career, wanted to enter the priesthood pretty early but how he kind of came into boxing is a little mysterious like this mythic figure where there's videos of him dancing around with Muhammad Ali I just wonder you're catching him in winter um, the imprint that he's made Mike can't seem to talk about him without breaking down into tears immediately what was his presence like as the patriarch of this bizarre household <laughs> um, I, I remember his voice uh, I don't remember so many specific conversations, but, um, you know, it, it was, he, he really took Mike under his wing. There really was this affection and, and, you know, as he would say, I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for Mike, you know, it, it was really they both needed each other and it was this perfect match and you could just feel the, the love they had for each other and you could see how caring it was, but there was also lots of laughter, mm. you know, and um, Mike's a funny guy, you know, and I, I guess Cus was kind of funny um, and Jim was the straight man and Jim was the, you know, the organizer and, um, you know, he would come up sometimes and I guess check on the kids and make sure everything was running smoothly up there. Mm. Uh, and Camille, Camille was the, the boss in the house, mm. you know, and they listened to her and they did their chores and, 
it was a bizarre um, setup, but um, it didn't. It didn't seem that unusual. It it didn't seem unusual to me in like you know you're saying you know about these two older people taking care of these wayward kids and you know um, it seemed like Jim Jacobs had the, obviously did have the means. And these kids were really being helped by being a part of this and by learning boxing and getting that discipline. And, and I could see that. And that's what interested me. It wasn't the sport. Right. Itself. Yeah. You, you made that clear in the introduction that it was the kids and not boxing that you were focused on. Um, but I, I guess one aspect I wanted to get at that I think is intriguing is there's this kind of duality with Mike and Cuss in that there's the one narrative that we're describing in terms of nurturing, loving household, he's in a safe place. But the other is that he's very much there as an unbelievable prodigy athletically. And Cuss has been basically thrown out of boxing. He's had these great champions in the past with Jose Torres and, um, and Floyd Patterson, obviously. But Mike, in a way, I've seen it depicted in many books, is going to be his revenge on boxing. That this will be this, uh, the legacy will be Mike Tyson for what Cuss has created here. To sort of avenge him being um, thrown out of the sport. I wonder if, it seems as if Mike at times has picked up on this conflict of the love that was there, but the love was a little dependent on the performance of what he would do in boxing for Cuss as well. But if he didn't perform, maybe he couldn't stay in the household. Maybe he wouldn't get the kind of support that he was receiving and being able to get away with some things because he, he was a little unstable from many accounts. So I just wonder if you could speak to that relationship that they had, the complexity of it. You know, I didn't know anything about Cuss's background or about boxing and boxing history. So I was really there as this, you know, I was an art student and then I went transferred to Parsons School of Design from a liberal arts college. And then I kind of left school and then I went back. And so I was kind of wayward myself. You know, I really had my own troubles. And um, I so. I didn't know any of that. Like when Teddy Atlas disappeared, I didn't know why. So you were there during a, that period? Yeah. It took such a long time for me to get that. It took years for me to find out what actually happened. But there's a so, prime example of exactly what we're saying is Mike gets exactly. away with doing something that's terrible. Right. And ultimately Atlas yes. is thrown out for upholding a moral standard. Well, he might have put a gun to his head or something, but... No, no, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not in any way signing off on that, but I can't <laughs> the sense of defending a family member from being assaulted. Absolutely, yes. And yeah. cuts, cuts throws him out. Right. So I, you know, okay, so boxing is a business. Jim Jacobs, Bill Caton, the big fights partners, cuss, of course, they're all interested in their careers as well. But I don't think any kid that was up there who didn't behave would have been able to stay. Right. So Mike definitely was an exception. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe other kids would have been given some leeway if they could make amends or something. I don't know. But 
Yeah, like how could they how could they let Mike go? I mean, the whole point Mike was there was because he came from this troubled background. They knew he was problematic. So they had to keep him on the straight and narrow. Um, you know, and, and the whole Teddy Atlas thing was crazy. But, um, you know, he was really good with Kevin Rooney. And, you know, there was the picture painted later by Robin and her mother of these white people trying to, you know, make money off this this kid. And I, I don't think the race card really works there because there are so many boxers of different ethnicities and backgrounds. And so, you know, the business was boxing. Right. And I do think that Jim and Bill made solid I don't know if it's investments, but that they had his money in a good place and it was safe and it was secure. And I don't think they were ripping him off as some people have tried to say. Certainly that was Don King's role. Sure. And Mike said he'd never go with Don King and then there is with Don King. So I do think, yes, I don't, I don't know about Cus's history, but he was saying to me, you should focus on Mike. He's going to be the next heavyweight champion. I mean, he absolutely knew. And I was like, yeah, but a girl is so unusual. And a nine-year-old kid with muscles is so unusual. You know, that was my interest as, as an artist photographer. Mm. But he knew. And they all knew. And so, yeah, Michael, Mike was this prodigy. And I think they did have, in most ways, Mike's best interest at heart. But, of course, yeah, they wanted the heavyweight champion absolutely yeah and i mean and to be clear uh i believe with torres patterson and mike they all claim that cuss never took a dollar from them so money was not the incentive in terms of what he was trying to facilitate it was something else that that was motivating it um i i was thinking as you're meeting tyson at this stage 14 years old um and I, I, I want to kind of separate Mike into two different categories, because like when Jack Newfield met him, similar, I think at the similar time to you, he said it was like reading a line of Norman Mailer for the first time or listening to a note from John Coltrane or listening to Bruce Springsteen. Just ecstatically clear that this was somebody who was going to be incredibly important at what they do for, for, for all time. Uh, I was also thinking of Truman Capote profiling Marlon Brando or Gay Talese profiling a 10-year-old Bobby Fischer. Um, what is it like to see somebody, I, I've known when I've profiled boxers that when you meet them and talk to them, you can almost forget once they enter a gym, oh yeah, it's a Mozart. Like they have that kind of ability too. So I'm wondering like all of the videos of Mike at 13 and 14 years old, there's nothing like it. There's never been a boxer that size who can do what he was doing at that age. I just wonder what that experience was like separating a 14 year old boy with this extensive rap sheet who also was sexually abused at the time. He's also a victim of that, who is such a prodigy athletically, like just separating the two, the personality from what he could do. You know, I, I don't know that I was so aware of all of that, you know, especially at the beginning, because I wasn't focusing on Mike. I mean, you know, the beginning didn't last that long. You know, it was a semester of college. So then I started photographing 
other fighters for the big fights, Wilfredo Benitez, and then Sports Illustrated asked me to photograph Roberto Duran, talk about somebody who's not very pleasant to be around. Tyson Ciro. <laughs> um, and, you know, and Jose Torres was around a lot. He was a super nice guy. And um, so I only knew Mike as this shy kid who wasn't very comfortable with the camera around, who didn't seem to have a lot of confidence. I remember after he started getting known, I don't know if he had won the title yet, but you know, he would ask me, do you and Cus was there too, do you think I'll, I'll ever get a date? You know, I mean, he, he really was unsure of himself. Mm. And, um, you know, and, and Cuss would try to boost his confidence. And, you know, the, the side, the other side of him, I mean, I can't speak to him being a prodigy other than that. You know, he, he was so big and he was, you know, just watching him hit a speed bag or, you know, just working out was something. So I guess even though I knew nothing about this, you could feel it. You could feel his presence. And and it was like this man-child kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but he was still one of the kids. You know, we'd go in the van to the different boxing clubs and, you know, matches with different clubs and they'd be playing around and fooling around. And he was just this big kid with these other kids who were different ages, but he was definitely the biggest one and one of the younger ones. Mm. And as time went on, you know, I do think Mike definitely has this sweet side to him. It's there, it's real um, and intelligence and humor. But as time went on and things got to be, well, of course, Cuss died and then Jim died. And then, you know, well, before Jim died, I think Robin was in, was in the picture. But, um, you know, you saw these different people showing up over time and the feelings were not good. Right. You know, it was like suddenly he's being pushed and pulled and these buttons are being pushed that brought out the other side of him. <clears throat> or that there were people that weren't out for his best interests, and you could see all that happening. Mm. And he, you know, it was his fault for falling for it, but it's also very difficult not to get involved because there you are with this beautiful woman and you fall in love with her and all these celebrities and all this money and you can do whatever you want. And the people who were actually directing you are gone you know, trying to keep you on a good path, even if they did let him get away with things, they still were trying to keep him on a good path. I remember Jim being disappointed, Jim and Bill, you know, these two white Jewish men, um, seeing Mike suddenly wearing these big gold medallions and, you know, the jewelry and, you know, all that stuff. And they really wanted that to be toned down. They really felt that that expression of things was was sending him in the wrong direction. Mm. And I think it was more to do with the people he was around, you know, the fancy cars and the parties and, you know, just spending money on things like gold and like handmade clothes and all this. It, it, 
it's a lot for somebody who never had anything to have more than most of us could ever imagine, but it's so much to be aware of what it is. And, and you know what I mean? It's like, you know, athletes in my view are the celebrity celebrity and the world champion in boxing is the ultimate one. Well, I've, I've often thought about Mike in those terms, like separating him from sports. When we commodify leisure to the extent that we have in a society, to pay somebody $21 million for 91 seconds of work expresses our desire for who that person is. And it could be for the performance, but a huge aspect of it clearly is the personality. And we're talking about a personality that was more marketable after being convicted for rape than when they before they went away, which says a lot about us. Yes. And so I wonder seeing him so early on, who just seems like such a troubled person, it's so it's a it's such a different constitution than say a Michael Jordan, where it seems like there's a mental illness about competitiveness that we think is positive, 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 but as a human being seems sort of terrifying. You know, like he was at a Hall of Fame speech where all he did was air grievances. And you think this is one of the most accomplished people you could ever be in any arena of ambition. How could he be grievance driven at this point? Um, Mike seems so, so much more accessible as a human being, as a damaged human being. Um, I just wonder if you thought as you're watching this incredible trajectory covering his life for 10 years, did you think he was going to be able to hold it together? Because it seems like there's a parallel with like Michael Jackson, where when I was a little boy and saw him in concert at four or five, I thought, wow, my parents had the Beatles for 10 years. I have Michael Jackson at 23. He could do 20 years of this. It could just get better and better and better. And it didn't. That's That was an ending rather than a beginning. And I just didn't understand it. Mike was quite similar in many respects. By 1986, he never really got better after, or, or not 86, but like after Michael Spinks, his apex, it didn't go up anymore. It went straight down almost. So I just wonder if you could kind of have a sense of that when you're meeting the little boy at 14. Not a little boy, but the, the big 14-year-old. Yeah, because again, you know, he, there was an innocence about him being yeah. around you know, this whole new world, you know, being in the country, being in this big house, having someone like Cuss, but, you know, he knew he wanted to box. And he, you know, he really did the work and he really did the studying and he was not only a good athlete, but he was very smart. Yeah. And, um, you know, and you could see the intelligence required to pull off the kind of moves and thinking that goes into boxing, which I also knew nothing about, but you could see how Cus would teach that and Mike would study that. And so again, it's these two worlds colliding mm. as he reaches that apex and then Robin Givens and Ruth Roper come in and then Don King comes in and, you know, and the money and the drugs and the partying and, it just starts to go downhill. And I did see that and I felt really bad about that. And I didn't really, you know, Mike got more and more unreliable and, you know, what did he care about me? You know, I'm just this photographer who's been around for nearly a decade and, um, 
you know, but he didn't, you know, I could sell stories because I had access. I could work for any, you know, people who started, at first I was trying to sell stories and I was at the Village Voice and that's how Newfield, I think, got to Newfield and I did some pieces together. Huh. And, um, you know, so at first it was like, what do, I, what do you know when I tried to sell stories? Then suddenly it was like, everybody would come to me because they saw what I knew and how I had access, but then Mike didn't always show up. So mm. that was really bad for me. And, right. and it was bad for me, not only with, you know, editors at magazines, but personally, and I, you know, there were other things I wanted to do with my life than just boxing. And so after a while, I was like, it's not worth it. You know, everybody wants a picture of Mike. Everybody wants me to do these celebrities surrounding Mike. But it's not worth me giving up other things in my life that I want to do going forward. You know, I'm not just here to be photographing Mike. And it was a great run, and it was so much fun. But it was really sad to see him end up like that. And, you know, it was like, confusion and disrespect for people and you know no no more direction you know no more real support from people no more real love from people mm. and he did have that with Cus and Jim and Camille certainly Camille because when he was in prison he and Camille talked all the time and Steve Lott was another one yeah. he was the assistant manager and he worked with Mike after Mike got out of prison, but um, sadly he died this past year. Um, so all those people were like gone. I mean, Steve was still there, but I think that a lot of the new people in his life didn't want the people from back then as part of it. And I think Mike was torn with that, especially if they were white people. Mm. And it's interesting also that Mike early on, I think people forget, but like the most conservative companies were backing him as a spokesman for their products early on. Like like later on, post post the rape conviction, all his money is from boxing. But I mean, originally it was like Diet Pepsi, Nintendo, Toyota, Kodak Film. Like he could have been a billionaire by the time he was 30 years old easily. Yeah, and he lost it all, you know, and, and I mean, he let Don King get into it, he let Robin get into it, right? you know, but he's reinvented himself, which is crazy that he, he keeps coming back. <laughs> and he's allowed to come back, you know, like, I mean, Bill Cosby is not coming back. Michael right. Jackson would not have come back, but Mike Tyson keeps coming back in a way that itself is very interesting. Why we can't let go of this, this attachment to him is kind of fascinating. It is. I, I think, you know, it has to do with, I think, obviously his backstory, but, um, you know, he served his time. And anybody who commits a crime of any sort and serves their time has the right to come back and start their life again. Um, and he hasn't raped anybody that we know of since then. So hopefully that, you know, he's got a oh, good he, marriage. And he denied, he denied 
raping the, the, the victim, but he did admit to somebody else he'd done, I think it was six to seven things worse than that which he was accused. Yeah. So uh, um, to the imagination what that would entail, but it's, I, I'm just trying to make the point that it's, Harvey Weinstein is not going to be en entering Dancing with the Stars anytime soon. Like we, right. it, it's just interesting who gets canceled and who doesn't. Right. Um, well, I think the thing about him denying it and, um, you know, only the two of them know what went on there. Nobody else knows. And I can only speak from the Robin Givens story, which I think he was more abused in that relationship than she the abuse she claimed. And I did see some of it. And I didn't see him abusing her. I did see her and her mother abusing him. Right. And, um, but he could also be very persuasive about things. So I could imagine him persuading this girl to do whatever he wanted without her consent. You know, I could see that. And he might not consider that rape. Right. You know? Um, but again, we don't know. Yeah. And, Maybe it's the the lisp and, you know, this soft-spoken guy with in this giant frame and the sense of humor. And, like, he's not an evil person, you know? And Harvey Weinstein, to me, is an evil person. And Bill Cosby is, I don't know if evil is the word, but really just demented and damaged and, you know, just. I just mean the complexity of, you know, O.J. Simpson was somebody clearly America loved and adored and is getting pass after pass after pass of abusing a number of women. And it is, I don't know, I think like Mike, as you say, like this is a kid who was mercilessly bullied and ridiculed for being a caricature of a gay kid early on. His nickname was Fairy Mike in Brownsville, which is something I want to ask you about because you visited it in 1987 with him. But to go from a picked on kid who can never stand up for himself to the scariest uh, manifestation of, of a heavyweight champion that there's ever been is quite a jump. And I think he very rarely gets credit for creating that construct like for self-marketing, because if you moved, if you con considered him as a marketing, marketing himself, you'd say he's one of the greatest marketers there's ever been, because this is somebody who's made billions upon billions of dollars for people, selling an image almost more than like the commodity of what he's offering in the ring. Because I mean, basically by 22 years old, he's not really interested in boxing anymore, which is kind of intriguing. Um, but, I, but I wanted to zero in for a second on what it was like. You, you mentioned in, in the, the introduction to your book that you were trying and pressuring Mike to, to have him take you to Brownsville. And he finally agreed in the summer of 1987. Uh, so it's a kid who grew up, on, I believe it was 178 Amboy Street. Did he take you to the apartment where he was born or just tour the neighborhood? We... We got in his car in his Rolls Royce okay. and we drove there. And it was very funny because in the car, when we were in traffic, he said, what do you think people think seeing me driving this car? What do, do they think they, you know, obviously he's talking about people who wouldn't recognize him. Do you think they think I'm a drug dealer? 
And I said, no, they probably think you're a music star, a music producer or something like that, if they don't know who you are. And, you know, so he still had that, like, you know, what do people think of me and who am I kind of um, stuff going on. And, and so we arrived there and all these kids are running up to the car to get autographs. Everybody there knew who he was. The cops are chasing him for autographs. Uh, he goes to the projects, and that's basically where we were, this uh, housing project um, where he would get his hair cut. So I don't think he showed me his apartment. Okay. And, um, you know, we went up, he got a haircut, I took pictures there. It was great. It, it was just for that, just for the haircut and kind of hanging out for a little bit. It was very short. Um okay. But it took a long, long time. And he actually used to say to me, it's too dangerous to bring you. I said, if I'm with you, I don't think I have to worry about it. Mm. And um, Had you been you to know, that area before? Had you, have you ever been in the projects in Brooklyn before? I mean, it's 1980s Brooklyn. <laughs> it just sounds pretty mythic. I hadn't, I hadn't been to the projects. Um, I had been in Bed-Stuy a lot. I was, I was raised by an African American woman named Jenny Anderson, and she was really like my grandmother, mother figure. My my parents, my father traveled for work a lot. My mother went with him. My mother wasn't much of a, a mother figure to me at all. She wasn't really a, um, present, and and Janie was the person that was like my disciplinarian so it was very much like Camille Mike would talk to Jenny on the phone huh. and so my brother and my cousin and I Jenny raised my mother and her sister so she'd been in my family for a very long time and she lived in Bed-Stuy so we would go take care of her there we you know visit her um so I had been around Bed-Stuy and people would be like who are those white people and she'd say they're my grandchildren and one of my biggest regrets in my life has to do with her death. And she had family in Newark and we were all very close. And she died and the um, funeral was in Bed-Stuy and I was up trying to photograph Mike and he wasn't showing up. And I was waiting, 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 but I had to get back to the city. And I finally gave up or he showed up and then I left and we were taking a car service and the driver had no idea about Bedstead. We didn't know where this place was and we couldn't find it. And we got there and the funeral was over. Nobody was there. The casket was still there and the little brochures were there and we were listed as her grandchildren. And it was because I waited for Mike who was not showing up that I missed that. So that truly is one of the big regrets of my life. And, um, you know, and her family was very disappointed in us. So that's a long aside, I know, but um, there was also that kind of weird connection. You know, he had Camille and I had Jenny. Um, so I got off track, remind me what you were asking. No, just just in the sense that this- Oh, this, his comeback, his comeback. Well, his, well, and just growing up in in, one of the worst dungeons that America could dish out in terms yeah. of like actuary tables of survival. That's where this guy emerged from. And, and you're seeing it 
at a pretty dark period in particular. 1987, Brownsville. Uh, but, you know, I've seen so much worse in war situations and human beings, we're all the same, you know, some of us. I, I just mean just even comparing it to a war zone. <laughs> it speaks yes, oh, absolutely. And there are still pockets of that in, you know, I live between New York City and Newburgh, New York. Newburgh, New York is very much like that in parts and it's changing, but it's was you know, one of the most downtrodden places in the United States and the highest murder rate in New York. And, um, you know, people come from these places and they can make it, they can get out of it, but, you know, a lot of them can't. And when you see all these people in the neighborhood coming up to Mike as their hero, you know, it's like they they are living vicariously through him. You know, he, he's our guy. He, he gives us hope. And maybe that's why he's popular over and over again. You know, he's he is always reinventing himself. And I don't know if it's him or his great marketing people or if his wife is so good at it. But, you know, if you follow him on on social media, you know, there's so much soul searching. And the one thing I'll say I've noticed is that it seems like his family life, his children are doing really well. And right. that he's a good parent and, you know, he never had that. But, you know, I've met his brother back then and I had met his sister as well. And, you know, his brother went on to be a, a physician's assistant or something mm -hmm. um, in and he's in L.A. So, you know, maybe Mike was more abused or he, you know, certainly picked on. You know, his brother was good looking and studious and all of that. Um, so, yeah, he was this misfit kid who had an extraordinary rise to the top. You know, it is like a like a, a video game or, or it's like an opera, you know. Yeah. Um, so he keeps coming back from the dark. Yeah. I guess I just wanted just two questions is that you were there with him. This is quite a trajectory, especially when you consider it's it's only four years after winning the world championship. Well, three and a half years, actually, um, to go from the youngest heavyweight champion ever, easily the most marketable athlete in the world. I mean, he's making the twenty one million dollars for ninety one seconds in 1988. It's years later before actors or A-list actors are making twenty million dollars a movie, um, to suffering the biggest loss in sports history with Buster Douglas. I wonder what it was like to be sort of as close as you were to witnessing that. Like the, the image of this person was so much bigger than clearly who he actually was at that time in terms of vulnerability. Yeah, he was so messed up and vulnerable. Vulnerable is the right term. I wasn't there for that fight. Um, and I went to the, I went to Japan with him for the fight before that, uh, just for the training. And right, do I have my history right? I forget things sometimes. Um, and you know, he, he it felt like almost like he was giving up, and there was all the problems with Robin, and Jim Jacobs died, and. 
um, I, I, that's when I was getting out of it. Mm. You know, I, I kind of, it wasn't, again, it wasn't worth my time. Right. Um, so, I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, I just was wondering, I went to see the first, the first show of the one man show in New York city. And, um, when I interviewed him after it, maybe a couple years after it, um, I said it was strange because I guess I've interviewed him about three hours in total that all of the credit he was getting for being authentic on stage did not at all seem representative of what he's like in private. It seemed totally different to me. And he was really intrigued by that. He wasn't offended. He just said, really, why? Why? What did you observe that, that made me seem different? I said, it just seemed completely performative in a way that you're not performative in private. It's one of the things that's so interesting about being around him privately. Uh, I, so I just wonder what your impression of it was, because it was obviously a huge success, but I, I, I found it kind of off-putting personally. Um, I, I was there on the opening night as well. I, I think, it, yeah, or the preview, it, I photographed him for Rolling Stone. Um, and of course they used a lot of my pictures in it. Um, I, I don't remember what I thought of it. I mean, you could, it, it didn't seem natural, you know, the way he was up there and directed and, but I think he, it was really good to hear some of the stories, you know, and I think he liked telling those stories and, and, um, you know, I don't know if you saw the Hulu show, but my publicist made me watch some of it. And I, I reviewed it. It was awful. <laughs> yeah. And it, I kept saying it's like this weird caricature. You know, the, the Broadway show was much better than what they yeah. did trying to like be some kind of, you know, creative show. It was just terrible. Yeah. And um he gets in these movies. I heard the last movie he was in was awful. I think if he plays himself, he does okay. Right? Maybe acting is not his thing. I think my, my sense of him in like this stage is just he's high all the time. Mm -hmm. and, and it keeps him pretty tranquil. And he just wants to make some money and look after his family. I don't know that he's really more ambitious for anything at this stage right now. Right, it seems like that. You know, I saw him a picture of him the other day in Florida with his daughter as a tennis player. Yeah. You know, that's what I'm saying. It's like he wants to be a good dad. He wants to look after his kids and he seems to want to have fun. He seems to enjoy being stoned. Um yeah. and I'm sure there's a lot of people around him who are helping with all that marketing and, and branding and rebranding. Um, yeah. yeah. Is there anybody yeah. else photograph that kind of, um, I don't know, had anything similar to, to what it was like to experience getting Tyson that young, that early on this incredible trajectory? No, nobody. I mean, I photograph, you know, I'm not a celebrity photographer. And sure. like I said, I went on to do other projects. I did a project about war. Um, so it's, it's a kind of remarkable to me now that this book is out and like talking to you and I'm 
not really an expert on boxing and there are certain things I forget because it was just this, it's, you know, I've done long-term projects as, as a documentary photographer and, but this wasn't a long-term project. This was something that was happening daily that I was part of that I would go to whenever I could. And sometimes I missed parts cause I was off doing something else, but it was almost more like news um that just kept happening then at the end of it you have this body of work that really shows his trajectory right and it was extraordinary to be a part of it and you know again seeing his rise and fall and i'm not really a part of the current rise um but that was tragic you know and and seeing how all these people work their way in to get their piece of him was was really sad and i felt really bad about that and you could really see him spiraling down at the end there and and you know it was um you know first it was the buster douglas fight and then it was the tony tubbs fight right and oh no in japan it was the tony tubbs fight that was the first one in japan you were at i think yeah and i was just there for the training and and you could just feel the tension and you know they were married such a short time but you could feel the tension between him and robin but when we were in the hotel room together with kevin and and steve you know he was himself he was laughing and he he was comfortable and relaxed when he was with robin he didn't seem like that you know, and, and when we left Japan, I flew back with Robin and her mother was at the airport in a limo and she was like, we'll give you a ride back to the city, but come with us to look at this house in Bernardsville, New Jersey. And I was so tired, but of course for me, it's a photo op and I, you can't say no, you know, and so we go there and they're looking around the house and I'm photographing Robin in all the different rooms. And then Mike called me that night and he's like, so what'd you think of the house that Robin wants to buy? And what was I going to say? You know, it was, it wasn't my taste, but it was a beautiful house. So it was, that was so sad, you know, just be, people really were taking advantage of him. Did you have a sense when you met Robin Givens that like this, is the proverbial, you know, like what's happened with Anthony Bourdain and Asia Argento, where it's like everybody around was like, this will be my destruction. And he said it himself. Did you have a sense choosing somebody like Robin Givens? Was Mike Tyson kind of saying, I want to self-destruct? Like, is there any other destination it could go? Yeah, I don't, you know, in the very beginning, I remember thinking that they were really in love and that she was really in love. Clearly he was really in love. I mean, they, if she wasn't really in love, she played the role really well. But all throughout, you know, it was Robin, Ruth, and Mike. It was never <laughs> Robin and Mike. And you could just see her on the phone all the time. Mm. And then suddenly Don King would appear, or suddenly Robin was having a miscarriage, or suddenly, like, everything seemed so orchestrated right. and evil, you know? Yeah. So... But I could totally see how he would fall in love with her. And it, it was, for me, part of the downfall.
you know, that I, that I saw it, but of course it really started with Cus dying and then Jim dying. And I, I guess this last thing is, is, are you pleased with the response that you've had to this book and this, you know, representing this window of your life? Uh, I'm pleased with the response so far. It's still very new because it just came out this month. Uh, and our official launch is at Gleason's gym in Brooklyn on October 15th. So that'll be really fun. Mm. Um, and then I can plug my exhibition on November 3rd in Manhattan. So that'll be interesting to see how people respond to like a photographic art show of Mike Tyson, you know, um, although I did just sell two prints. So some people are interested in collecting it, but what's really interesting is, is getting used to the fact that some people do not want to talk about Mike Tyson Mm -hmm. and they don't want to bring a book about Mike Tyson into their home, whether it's because he, bit someone's ear or he raped someone or boxing's just a horrible sport, you know, and, and, and then there's the other half that are totally fascinated by him. And then there's one or two people who don't know who he is. Right. <laughs> um, but very few. I mean, there's little kids who came this weekend to an event where I was signing books and they knew who he was young, you know, young girls and, so that was that was surprising. Um, I think certain generations might not know who he is, or if they if they didn't see the Hangover, or you know, obviously they're born after you know they're <coughs> born in the '90s or something. Um, so I, I I think the one eye-opening thing is the people who want nothing to do with it versus the people who want to hear every single story. It is interesting also too, when we grow up with somebody, what they represent, like in our own pantheon of characters, because like I I got to Jack Nicholson maybe seven or eight years after he retired from acting and interviewed him. And I thought, wow, people would be really interested in this. They're not because anybody under 45 doesn't really know who he is or care. Interesting, right. Jack Nicholson, but it's like, yeah, Jack Nicholson. It's not Taylor Swift. It's not just mm-hmm. even them have aged right. out from a new generation yeah. of stars. It's inter- just interesting. And it depends on where your focus is when you're online. So if you're not watching Mike's podcast with him getting stoned all the time, you wouldn't know any, you know, a lot of people have asked me, what does he do now? Right. So they, they, they have no idea about his presence right now whereas he's got 19 million plus followers on social media yeah and i mean imagine if there was social media when he was coming up yeah represent i like that's the thing that's hard to impart to people because i think it's sort of like what michael jackson's fame was at his peak with thriller or something like that Mm -hmm. Not only is it the best selling and all of that, but the space that he occupied of celebrity is something it's so much more fragmented subsequently that there's no way to recreate that for anybody. I also think that, you know, obviously boxing is less popular, but I think, you know, I was listening to a a radio interview uh, yesterday with this writer who did some martial arts. And he has this book that just came out and, you know, just how 
the brain damage from martial arts, you know, the real beating in some of those martial arts that, you know, are worse than boxing. But a lot of people talking now about that. And of course, with football and other sports. So I think boxing is less popular as some other sports might not have been so hurt by the idea of the, you know, physical damage to people. Um, but there's there also hasn't been another boxer like Tyson or Ali. No. You know, so I don't follow boxing, but I would know if there was somebody like that. So I think that's also part of it. He's the last great world heavyweight champion. Yeah, I mean, I think the only one, the only one that captured the zeitgeist similarly after was probably somebody like Ronda Rousey in in the MMA, because suddenly it was like you have a sport that was banning women from participating, like not long before she came around. And suddenly she was bigger than MMA, which is bigger than boxing, bigger than sports. She just represented something that was like, mm -hmm. this is so unprecedented for what Serena Williams is talking about being the greatest ever, regardless of gender. But there was no question who was the most marketable personality and figure in, in, in mixed martial arts was, was a woman. It's just like... I don't think it, it. We've taken the measure of what that was, and I'm not even an MMA fan. I, I don't. I'm totally ignorant to it. But it was just like this is really unprecedented and staggering. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Tyson, I don't know much about it. Yeah, but just Tyson seemed to be as a cultural figure so much big. Like he probably had the most famous face on the planet for a yeah. little period of time. Yeah, as, as Ali did before him. Mm-hmm. But Ali was a hero and Tyson is not. Despite you know, the fact that Ali, incredibly misogynistic, uh, signed off on Malcolm X being murdered, um, was a separatist, <laughs> you know, like he's, a, he's now this secular saint of civil rights. He was anti-civil rights all over the place um, during the 60s, but that's not the way we think of him any longer. Mm-hmm. Not that he didn't change, but it's just it's interesting how much the record has evolved into a nostalgic interpretation that is very historically rewritten. And I'd say the one thing that keeps them both in the mind's eye and where maybe Tyson has emulated Ali a bit is with their conversation, their, their slogans, their being quotable. You know, and Mike, I think, is really working on that now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his quotes are so, especially while he was fighting, terrifying. But, but I mean, mm -hmm. Hemingway would have killed to have had quotes like yeah. Mike fighting. But now it's more philosophical and soul-searching and, you know, looking back on his life and looking forward. And so, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't know if how the machine works but it's definitely there's definitely a machine there yeah uh thank you so much for your time Lori. i really appreciate it okay thank you it was interesting talking with you yeah likewise all right take care you too bye bye thank you for listening to this week's episode of tourist information the producers are george alarcon swaby and myself bryn jonathan butler please subscribe or rate the podcast it helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.